You're listening to Face the Jury, a podcast dedicated to confronting the issues of medical malpractice in America, what it is, how to spot it, and how to protect you and your family from medical negligence. I am your host, Lloyd Bell, a medical malpractice trial lawyer representing people who have been harmed by medical negligence. For more information, please visit belllawfirm.com. Last week, we talked about the case of Ryan Stevens, which was a case of medical malpractice involving testicular cancer. And the case resulted in a settlement, uh, which is how most of these cases are resolved, probably 85, 90%. This week, we're going to talk about three cases that did not settle, but went forward all the way through a jury trial and were ultimately decided by 12 people in the community who reached a plaintiff's verdict. We'll look at what it took to win these cases and what it took to bring justice to those involved this week on Face the Jury. A lot of these medical malpractice cases we handle resolve pretty quickly. They can resolve in a a year, maybe a year and a half. That's fairly typical. Some of these trials, though, take many years to get in front of a jury and to get a resolution. We're going to talk about one case, the case of Connie Lockhart versus Glenn Bloom and other defendants. This was a case that took a number of years of litigation to bring to a conclusion. So I want to tell you a little bit about her case, about the facts of her case, and then talk about the trial. This was a case where Connie Lockhart was taken to the emergency department, and the emergency room physician believed that she needed to have what's called a femoral catheter placed. And this is basically a tube that they put into one of your large vessels so that the doctor can get medicine to you in an efficient and quick way. And this was totally appropriate to to do this. So he tried to place this femoral catheter in the vein in her leg, in her groin. It's called the femoral vein. But the problem was he put it in the wrong blood vessel. Instead of putting it in the femoral vein, he stuck it in the femoral artery. And it makes a difference because veins and arteries do different things. Arteries take blood away from the heart and circulate it, and veins take blood back to the heart and to the lungs to get more oxygen. So the doctor stuck the tube in the wrong place, and it became a problem because nobody detected it. And another doctor started giving her medicine through that tube that was supposed to be taken back in the direction of her heart and distributed around her body. And this was medicine designed to get her blood pressure up. It's called vasocompressors, and this medication is designed to squeeze down your blood vessels, increase your blood pressure, and help the patient. Well, instead of this medication going up towards Connie's heart and being distributed around her body, this medicine went down into her right leg, and it squeezed up all the blood vessels in the bottom of her leg, and her leg did not get the oxygen that it needed to survive. So over the next few days and weeks, Connie's leg became necrotic. It started to die from lack of oxygen and eventually developed gangrene and was past the point of no return where the doctors ultimately had to amputate her lower leg in order to save her. I came into this case after it had been litigated for several years by a different law firm, and I was brought into the case to to help move it forward. And it took us over four and a half to maybe five years before we finally got in front of a jury on the case. We went to trial on Ms. Lockhart's case, 
on Connie's case. And it was a many years getting there. We had two very capable defense lawyers, one of whom was defending the ER physician who placed the catheter in the wrong place. And then another lawyer was defending the physician who put the medicine through the tube and did not figure out the mistake when he, we contend that he should have. The case was tried in Fulton County, uh, which is downtown Atlanta, and it was televised. And the case demonstrated a couple of points about medical malpractice. And the biggest one is the need to be tenacious in these cases because they can wear you down. They can take years, as I mentioned, to get to trial. But you know, just the actual trial it was a two-week trial, 16, 18-hour days as the case was presented during the trial and then at night preparing for the following day. And there are a lot of moving parts in these cases. I tend to think of trials like a play or a production. You have the different elements of the play. You've got the the actors or the characters, which are, of course, the witnesses. You've got props, which are demonstrative evidence, uh, items used to help explain the medicine. You've got script. You've got costume. You've got all these different elements. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to persuade the jury that the story you're presenting is the right story. And of course, we don't take any case unless we are 100% convinced that we are on the right side of the case and that the case has merit. We're not going to accuse any doctor, any nurse, or any hospital of doing something wrong if we don't know for sure, based on in-depth research, that they did something wrong. So getting back to Connie's case, one of the ways that we were able to tell Connie's story is we try to use as many physical models and things that you can touch so the jury is interested. If it's a lawyer standing up in front of the jury, behind a podium, giving speeches. I mean, how many people really like to hear a speech? Uh, not many. And juries aren't there by choice. They're plucked up from the community with a effectively a subpoena, forcing them to be there to participate. So we're very sensitive to the jury's concerns, which is primarily to get to the point and to get the case resolved and to keep them interested and to get them vested in the story. So one of the things we did in Connie's case was we made a deliberate choice to use a lot of models and things so that the jury could understand the case in as much detail as possible. So for example, we brought a catheter to the courtroom and we reenacted how a catheter is placed in a person's body like it was placed in Connie's and how it's supposed to be done and the, the correct way it's to be done as opposed to the way it was done in this case. So we do this reenactment in front of the jury. We were using models. We're in close so that the jury can see what we're doing. And it has a very important impact to the jury because now they feel like they understand the medicine because a lot of these medical malpractice cases, they're a little intimidating to, to folks at first because it just seems like medicine. You've got to go to school for you know, so many years to be a doctor. And you know, how is somebody who, who doesn't have that education, how are they able to understand or going to be expected to understand how all these different medical systems work? One of my primary jobs as the trial lawyer representing my client is to simplify the medicine and to explain it in very simple terms that are accessible to people so that they can understand these issues because it's really not that complicated at the end of the day. I mean, the human body is a machine. The machine has to be treated a certain way. There's certain rules for how to take care of people. And doctors break these rules and cause harm, then that's when there's a case. 
Connie's case took a number of years. It took a lot of tenacity to get it to that point. The case is still going on. We did receive a $4.5 million verdict against one of the defendants. The case continues against the other defendant um, after it travels through the Court of Appeals. So we expect to be back in court to continue and hopefully conclude the case. But all of these cases that end up in trial take a lot of work, take a lot of focus, and most importantly, take tenacity. A few moments ago, I was talking about the Connie Lockhart case and the trial in which we used a number of creative demonstratives to help tell the story of the case and help explain the medicine. I'm going to talk to you about another case that we tried several years ago. The case is called Michael Barber versus Piedmont Noonan Hospital. And this was a medical malpractice case we tried in downtown Atlanta involving a wonderful gentleman who sustained a permanent chronic injury that inflicted pain on him that was nonstop and lifelong, unfortunately. And in this case, Mr. Barber was having some chest pains and he was about 42 years old at the time and he and his wife were concerned. Uh, You know, you always think, oh goodness, I hope this isn't a heart attack. I hope it's just indigestion or muscle strain or something. So Mr. Barber went to Piedmont Noonan Hospital and he said, I've got feeling some chest pain. And they did some testing on him. And they said, well, let's keep you overnight. And we're going to have you do a what's called a nuclear stress test in the morning. And this is a procedure where they inject some material in you. It's like it's got a small amount of nuclear material in it. And they inject it into your bloodstream. It travels to the heart. They take a picture of your heart. And then they put you on a treadmill and they get your heart rate up They make you run on a treadmill. And then they inject some more of this material in you, take another picture of your heart, and then they look at your heart at rest and they compare it to your heart uh, when the heart rate's up. And this can help reveal possible problems like heart blockages or vessel blockages. So this is what Michael was doing. And they put a catheter in his arm the night before, just a tube so that they would have access to inject this material the next day. And they put the tube in his arm. The next day, they do the resting part of this procedure. No problem. Uh, They inject the material into his arm, goes to his heart to take a picture. Then they put him on the treadmill and they run his heart up and they go to inject again. But what you're supposed to do before injecting this material is you're supposed to inject a little bit of saline solution through the catheter to make sure the catheter is still inside the blood vessel because these things can easily get dislodged, particularly if you're running on a treadmill. Well, the nurse didn't do that. Instead, she injected the material directly through the catheter, but instead of going into his blood vessel, it went into the subcutaneous tissues, the tissues around the blood vessels and the fascia of his arm. And his arm bubbled up. You could see the bubbles in his arm where this material went in, and he immediately felt a burning, searing pain in his arm. And unfortunately, this pain did not go away, but it developed and resulted in a condition known as complex regional pain syndrome, or CRPS. It used to be known as RSD, or regional sympathetic dystrophy. But what it is, is it's a chronic, horrible pain condition. This is a a condition, CRPS, that has been identified at least as far back as the Civil War. 
the doctors back then were doing so many amputations of the soldiers, and they noticed that the soldiers who survived the amputations and their their bodies healed up, they noticed that a good number of them still had reports of severe pain in the limb that was no longer there. Um, sometimes this is known as phantom pain. And it's like, well, how can my foot hurt? There's no foot there. And this was uh, a mystery for many years. And the medical community finally figured out that what's going on is this pain is not located in the, the limb, the leg or the arm or wherever, but it's actually living inside the spine and in the brain of the patient. We had the case reviewed by medical experts and nursing experts, and the rule violation was that you always have to check to make sure the catheter is in the right place. What they say is they call patent, and catheter has to be determined and evaluated to make sure it's in the right place before you inject anything into the human body, particularly this radionucleotide material. And they didn't do that, and it caused them harm. So we filed the lawsuit. We had a year and a half maybe of discovery where we went back and forth, taking depositions, reviewing records, going through the case. And ultimately, the case ended up in trial. And the fighting ground of the case was not so much that the nurse did the wrong thing in terms of not checking the catheter, but the defense was, you know, your client's really not that hurt. Um, He looks fine. The so-called pain condition is somewhat speculative, the defense said, and we don't think he has CRPS for these reasons because we have an expert that says he doesn't, and we're going to contest this case all the way to the end, and that's what happened. And this trial really stands out for a number of reasons. Just sort of paint a picture here for you. So we called our experts, and our experts testified about how the rules were broken and and how Mr. Barber does, in fact, have this diagnosis of CRPS, complex regional pain syndrome. Well, the defense called in an expert from Rhode Island who's uh, very well regarded in his community, highly educated, looked like something out of Hollywood casting. He was about six foot five, you know, looked like he was an Olympic athlete at one time, very articulate, very impressive guy. And he's on the witness stand and he testifies that Michael does not have CRPS and he doesn't, he's reviewed the medical records. He's never met the client. He's never done a physical exam himself, but he's reviewed the records and he's convinced from what he's seen that my client, you know, maybe something going on with him, but it's not this serious condition known as CRPS. So we made a decision. I made a decision to give this doctor, uh, his name was Dr. Arnold Weiss, give him an opportunity to, actually touch my client. You know, what are you talking about? That's crazy. You don't let a posing expert lay a finger on your client. Well, one of the issues in the case was, of course, this diagnosis. And the testimony had been that Michael has different temperatures in his hands. His right hand is a different temperature than his left hand. And that is a strong sign of a neurological disorder, a nerve disorder supporting the CRPS diagnosis. And our expert had touched my client's hands during trial and and testified that one hand was clearly cooler than the other. And then Dr. Arnold Weiss is on the witness stand and he's disputing this diagnosis. And I said, well, doctor, I'd like to give you an opportunity to touch my client's hands. And of course, I had discussed this with my client ahead of time and tell tell the jury yourself if you, if you think there's a, a temperature difference. He was a little surprised and he got off, but he agreed and he got off the witness stand 
and stood in front of the jury and I brought Michael up and Michael put his hands out and the doctor took his hands and felt them. And then without any warning, without any mention, he takes his thumb and he drives his thumb into the affected area of Michael's arm, just above his hand. And Michael recoiled in pain and was like, ah, doc. And he pulled back just reflexively. And what the doctor was doing is he was seeing if Michael was in fact faking this whole thing. And if he was faking, if he really did not have CRPS, he would not have felt any significant pain in what he did. But since Michael did in fact have CRPS, he jerked his hand back. I immediately stepped in between them and said, whoa, don't do that. You back off. And he did. But of course, that experience had a huge impact on the jury as they saw this drama unfold and they saw this event happen right in front of them. So this diagnosis, this disputed diagnosis was a key part of the case. And of course, the doctor testified, well, I didn't feel any temperature difference at all in his hands. And he said his hands felt the same to me. So now we have one expert who says the hands were different temperatures. And then the defense expert saying, no, they're the same temperature. So I turned to the judge and I said, well, your honor, I go, um, I'd like to give the jury the opportunity to feel Michael's hands for themselves and determine if they feel a temperature difference, because this is an important fact in the case. And of course, there was an enormous objection by the defense counsel, just object, object. This is improper. And the judge ultimately said, well, if the jury wants to, I'm going to give them the opportunity because Michael's hands were now evidence in the case. So we had this big fight in front of the judge. And then I, I looked at the jury and, and nobody took, took me up on the offer at first. They all kind of looked back at me. I was like, well, does anybody want to touch Michael's hands? And there was hesitation. Nobody said anything. I was like, come on. I just, just won this, this, this fight with the judge. <laughs> We've got the ruling. Please, somebody, anybody. Finally, this, this one gentleman on the front row said, well, I'd like to touch his hands. So Michael went over and puts his hands out and the, the juror very gently touched Michael's hands and sort of nodded after he was finished. And then the next juror said, I'd like to touch his hands too. And then the next juror and the next juror and the next juror, pretty much everybody on the jury had had this connection and had this opportunity to touch Michael's hands. It's a very profound moment in the trial because it helped create literal connection between the jury and my client, but it also revealed frankly, the dishonesty of the defense expert who was saying that there was no temperature difference at all, when clearly there was. And he was he was just trying to help his side of the case and wasn't being as, as forthcoming as he should have been. But that's an example of a, a high-risk decision in the heat of battle. We hadn't planned any of that. There was no way to anticipate how it was going to unfold. But it required, I believe, some creativity, some risk-taking, in these medical malpractice cases, if you look at the national statistics of the folks who keep track of how many times doctors win versus patients, it's about 90% doctor win over patients nationwide. Our statistics aren't in Georgia are, are much more favorable for the plaintiff, but those are the national statistics. And it just sort of underscores how difficult these cases can be. So you have to be willing to take chances. You have to be willing to do things that are honest and that are compelling and memorable you know, for the jury. And we did it in, in Michael's case, and uh, the jury returned a very favorable verdict uh, north of $4 million, and they 
they saw the truth in the case and they were able to decide who was bringing them the true case and the true facts. And they reached a, a just outcome as a result. It went up on appeal. Part of the verdict was taken away, a small, small part. But even after the appeal, what remained was a very favorable verdict in a challenging case. In the last case, we talked about how a jury trial can be something of a battlefield where you have to make quick decisions in the heat of battle that you could not have anticipated ahead of time. The case I'm going to talk to you next about is a case involving Emory Healthcare, a large medical group in Atlanta, has clinics around the state and throughout Georgia. And this case involved a very sad situation, a gentleman named Chris Nelson who was just a wonderful gentleman from rural Georgia, married to a high school sweetheart, two grown boys, nice fella, just a person you, you like to sit around and tell stories with, just a really good guy. And he was a short-haul truck driver. He drove a box truck around Metro Atlanta, sold potato chip products to convenience stores, different grocery stores, hardworking kind of guy. Well, he goes into a, an Emory Clinic for a routine physical. Truck drivers have to get these physicals periodically. And he goes in and they take his weight, they check his blood pressure, and they put him in an examination room. And they say, well, we're going to send somebody in a few minutes to take your blood so we can get a send it off to the, to the lab and get a blood test. And a short while later, a young medical assistant comes in and says, I'm going to take your blood. And Chris is sitting up on the table with his feet hanging off the side of the exam table. And the young assistant pulls out little glass vials to put the blood in, then that rubber strap that we all are familiar with. And she ties the strap around his arm and she pulls the vial out, gets the needle, and she starts drawing blood out of Chris's arm while he's sitting up on this table. She takes the first vial, she takes a second one and a third one, and then she turns away from Chris to put the vials in a little container, prepared to just ship them off. And when she turns away, Chris loses consciousness and he falls headfirst off the table, unguarded, and his head hits the floor, breaks his nose and it breaks his neck. And the force of impact squeezed his spinal cord at his neck area and caused cord compression and paralysis. And whereas Chris had walked into the clinic about 45 minutes earlier, the ambulance came and took him out on a stretcher. And Chris was for a time quadriplegic and recovered some of his movement in his arms, but has remained paraplegic and will uh, be in that condition for the rest of his life. That was the case uh, that I was I was brought in on to try, and we prepared the case. Uh, Emory defended it vigorously for at least two years, maybe three years. And as we approached trial, Emory brought in a, a new defense firm, has sort of a reputation for aggressive in-court defense tactics. And they brought in this defense firm shortly before trial, maybe a, in a week, maybe two weeks before trial. The defense firm admitted liability on behalf of their client. Now, it's hard to overstate how unusual it is in medical malpractice cases for a defendant to admit anything, and particularly liability. 
and to admit that as a matter of law that they violated the standard of care, that they broke rules and have caused harm to a patient. So why do they do it? Well, they did it as a trial tactic. And the reason they admitted liability, and liability is just the legal term for admitting fault and some damage, was to try and keep out certain evidence that would likely inflame or upset the jury. For example, the lack of training that this young medical assistant had received to draw blood, because the rule violation here was that you never, never, never give blood while you're sitting up on a table. A standard of care is that the healthcare professional put you in a chair with arms when drawing blood or lay you down on the exam table. Uh, but it's extremely dangerous to draw blood from somebody sitting up on a table because they can, for this exact reason, they can pass out. Even if you've given blood for your entire life and never had any problem with being lightheaded or faint or anything like that, it can happen unexpectedly, maybe because of low blood sugar, you know, whatever it might be. So it was a clear standard of care violation. Of course, Emory fought it for years before finally admitting liability. So this was a very unusual case in that respect. It was necessary to try the case differently because it was an admitted liability case than we would have tried it if it was a contested liability case. Obviously, the defense wants the benefit of standing in front of the jury and saying, look, we admit we made a mistake. We admit we did some things wrong, but please don't make us pay for the damages we caused, or at least don't pay as much as the plaintiffs think we should. And on our side, the case becomes all about, you know, what are the damages? What are the damages that were caused in this incident? And in our case, they were dramatic um, and profound, but they were, they were contested. The defense made arguments and suggestions that Chris Nelson was faking some of his disability and that he could really do more than he was letting on. It was difficult to hear those arguments because I had gotten to know Chris so well. And one of my dear friends, Judge Keegan Federal, is a former state court judge in DeKalb County, was the attorney who brought me in on the case. And he and I um, had collaborated and worked on the case together and gotten very close to Chris. And that's common in these cases. You really get to know your client at a very profound level. And it hurt to hear him accused of being dishonest and and a malingerer or faker. But that was a large component of the defense. So Chris's condition became at issue. He was in a wheelchair. He did have some ability to walk in a very limited way using arm braces, but he spent his life in a mobile wheelchair because his walking was so impaired. So at one point in the trial, you know, the jury's hearing the lawyers fighting over and arguing about how much Chris can walk or how much he can't walk. And I realized that the jury just really needs to see for themselves. So I turned to Chris and I said, well, Chris, he was on the witness stand. And I said, um, I said, I think the jury needs to sort of understand what your capabilities are in terms of walking. Would you be willing to walk across the courtroom and, and let us see how you do? Would that be okay? And Chris said, yeah, that'd be fine. So he rolled his wheelchair to the far end of the courtroom and he proceeded to unstrap the straps that hold his feet in place. And, and using his hands, he pulls his right leg and then his left leg off to the side and he clears the little metal restraints around him. So he has a clear path. And then he got to his feet and he put one foot in front of the other and then the second foot and very slowly 
Very carefully, he moved across the courtroom towards the jury, and the jury could see very clearly that what a struggle it was for Chris to move his legs, how his feet weren't aligned properly, how his balance was very unsteady. And that in-court demonstration was very impactful and helpful to the jury to really understand what his condition was like. And it undercut the credibility of the defense who had tried to falsely suggest that Chris was much more capable of walking than we were letting on. We were sort of trying to hide the truth was the suggestion. And there's one last point on this that really will stick with me forever. But when Chris got in front of the jury box and was just talking to the jury, he goes, I I can normally walk a little bit better than this, he says. But in the mornings, I have to spend about 45 minutes on a mat with my wife stretching out and getting my muscles loose. And after I do that for about 45 minutes, I can move a little bit better than this. He goes, but I didn't want you to get the wrong idea that this is how I always walk because I can usually do a little bit better than this, but I didn't have time to stretch this morning. And the credibility and the honesty that Chris exuded was was just profound. And the jury clearly cared about him, clearly cared about his condition, was not buying what Emery was selling in terms of that Chris really wasn't that badly hurt. And they returned a very substantial verdict. They returned a verdict of $15 million for Chris, admitted liability case. So we're very proud of the verdict. The case subsequently settled without an appeal for a confidential amount, but we were very proud of the verdict and Chris and Mike and, the, and of course, Connie. These cases stick with me because, well, one of them is still ongoing, of course, but just the relationships you form with these folks and the creativity you have to bring to these cases, the tenacity. They're very different cases in some ways, but the common thread in all of them is that you have to be flexible as the attorney to get the story out so that the jury can see the truth. And, and sometimes that involves using using models or creative demonstrative exhibits. Sometimes it involves having your client walk across the courtroom unexpectedly so that the jury can understand. Sometimes it involves doing an in-court reenactment with medical equipment. But no case is the same, no client's the same, no jury is the same. Every case has the same goal, which is to get a full and fair and just outcome for each client. Uh, It takes tenacity. It takes creativity, maybe a bit of showmanship in the courtroom. It takes flexibility on an ever-changing battlefield. It's kind of a tired metaphor, but a trial is very much a, a battle. It's a contest between highly motivated adversaries, each with very distinctive goals that are adverse and in conflict. And it takes an ability to adapt in that environment and to excel. And it takes aggression, it takes compassion, and it takes flexibility. Next week on Face the Jury, we're going to talk about one of the most significant cases that I've ever been involved in. It's the case of Sandra Williams versus St. Francis Hospital in Columbus, Georgia. This was a case that resulted in a verdict of $26 million in favor of the plaintiff, who was horribly brain damaged and rendered blind by the negligence of the defendant. Face the Jury is produced by Lloyd Bell and Adam Kincaid, executive producer Lauren Shankman, and audio engineer Joel Edwards. I'm your host, Lloyd Bell. Join us, as always, next week on Face the Jury.